or teaching. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue... My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit. I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to you, to your thanksgiving, when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues... And by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for the believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy, all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. If there is no no one to interpret, let them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged and the Spirit's of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as in the law it says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, 
he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So then, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Our Father, we pray that you would help us this morning and that you would ever keep us from doing anything that would not be pleasing to you and that you would help us to be enlightened by the same Holy Spirit that gives spiritual gifts. Will you enlighten our minds and hearts? And we also pray, God, that you would work in our church in any and every way that would please you. And Father, we pray right now that every person here, no matter what their uh, position is, that we would also remember chapter 13 about love. And that's why, Lord, we know that's exactly why you put that between 12 and 14. And all the discussion on spiritual gifts, you reminded that it's all clanging symbols and useless without love. So we do pray, O oh Father, that you would help us and that you would encourage us and that you would help us to see the goodness of your word. And also, Father, we acknowledge that there are probably some things in this passage that none of us know exactly how to handle or best deal with this. So we just want you to be our leader. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin by kind of explaining um, how we got where we are. Um, this journey has lasted much longer than I imagined. And I think some of you would say, amen. But I do not regret that. I do not regret that for the simple reason that I needed. And I think our church needed to walk a bit more slowly through some of this. Some of you may be new to our church and let me attempt to explain what we have been doing. We were traveling at a reasonable pace through 1 Corinthians and then we suddenly pulled into a rest stop round about chapter 12 to ponder spiritual gifts. And we are still at the rest stop with just a little bit more work to do on our study of spiritual gifts, but also recognizing that our spiritual gifts will need to become a more conscious part of our travels and mission as we go forward. I think everyone would agree, no matter what your position are on some of these things, we desperately need the work of God's Holy Spirit in our church. And we need to experience His presence and trust His guidance and love His Word more and be more expectant when we come to church to see God working and doing the wonderful things that God does when we read our Bibles. I think everyone here would say that's exactly what we all as a church desire. So... 1 Corinthians 12, 1 says, Concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And so we parked here a while. There are varieties of gifts. This is one of the gift lists in the New Testament. But the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. For the common good. So just as a reminder, every Christian will have one or more spiritual gifts. But you cannot have a spiritual gift unless you have the Holy Spirit. And you cannot have the Holy Spirit unless you are born of the Spirit. Which is what we would call conversion. In John 3, 
It says, unless one is born, of this, born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the first thing that we know in this discussion, and the first thing that I would say to someone, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not sure where you stand, that is the most important thing. The first thing is that you understand your need for Christ. Everything begins there. And all this discussion about spiritual gifts uh, does not concern you, at least in the way that you might think that it does, until you are converted. And the first thing is, do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And do you believe and place your faith and trust in His finished work to become a Christian? And so once you walk through that door of conversion, then this becomes a very important and relevant topic for you. In Hebrews eleven six, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So if you're not a Christian then God wants to invite you to become one. And then He wants to give you, once you become one, a spiritual gift or gifts so that you can bring meaning to your life and give direction to your life and so you can know how to serve your Lord and your King. So there are several gift lists in the New Testament. In these gift lists, there are several gifts that we might call speaking gifts that are greatly important to God's work. And in fact, these speaking gifts are essential to the work of God. And so we wouldn't be here. I'm using a speaking gift right now. And there's someone over in the chapel using a speaking gift this morning, teaching Sunday school. There are people down the hallway using speaking gifts down the hallway. There's actually interaction occurring in the body of Christ where you're using speaking gifts to one another. Um, And so speaking gifts are great importance. There's a few of them that are quite controversial. One of the ones that we've camped here for a few weeks is speaking in tongues. But many of you have spiritual gifts, and thank God you're actually and actively using them in our church. And we should be grateful to God for the many speaking gifts at work right here. So those of you who are using your gifts and you have speaking gifts, thank you. We need you, and we are thankful that you're using them. And we pray that we would create there would be more and more opportunities for you, for everyone that has speaking gifts, to be able to use them for the building up in the kingdom of God. So here's a few. I just want to give a reminder. We've discussed some of these, but I, I want to package this all together so that we don't get lost and drowned in the topic of speaking in tongues. I want, to, I, want to, I, want you, I want a better feel for some of these speaking gifts. There are many of you who have the gift of encouraging and exhorting, and you are eager to see people walk with God and grow in their faith. And God gives you, often gives you, especially as you walk closely to God, spiritual words to encourage those who are discouraged and to challenge those who are in need to be exhorted to keep moving forward in their walk with Christ. So to you who have gifts of encouragement and exhortation, thank you. Many of you have this gift and don't even know it was a gift. And I see in here many of you using it all the time in relationships. When I think of people who are are gifted in encouraging and exhorting, people's names and faces come to my mind in our church. And I think of certain people and go, oh man, that person is so good at exhorting and challenging people in their walk with God. They see them do it in their life group or their Bible study or in one-on-one relationships. Man, that brother or sister is so encouraging. I just love to be around them. I feel so lifted up when I'm around them. And then thank God that some of you have the gift of evangelism. 
You are all about sharing the gospel with those who do not know the Lord. You love to witness and see people come to faith. It's electrifying to you. And you get frustrated when the people are not being saved. Thank you. You help the rest of us remember that we, are not, we were not suddenly airlifted to heaven the moment we were converted because we are to invite others to join us in getting there. You are soul winners and we thank you. Thank you. We need you. We need to have soul winners. We cannot carry out the mission of the gospel unless we have this passion to direct those who encourage and exhort and all the other gifts need evangelism and evangelists in our midst. You help the rest of us remember how important soul winning is. Thank you. Many people have come to faith right here because our local evangelists in our church are constantly out there thinking of ways to help others come to know Jesus. Always inviting people to church. Always asking what can we do to help people connect with God. If you can understand that video that Jordan just said. We were describing before we set up this announcement. We need to make sure people understand. We're not just wanting to hand candy to kids on Halloween. We're wanting to see people come to know the Lord. And therefore we set up these things. We would stop our Wednesday night Bible study on occasion in order to invite people. There's something going on in our community that can be used as a means to a door or a bridge to sharing our faith with people. And therefore thank you of people who think like that. And we want to remind you. That's why we put it together like this. We want to remind the rest of you. It's not just a thing you ought to go, oh, they're not doing real stuff on this Wednesday night. We're not going. You ought to go, no, this is fantastic. I have some friends that would never walk through the doors of the church, but they'd walk around in the parking lot with a weird suit on asking for candy. But they might one day come back through the doors of the church because someone invited them and they begin to see that, man, these people are actually kind and they have something. And along the way, maybe they stick something in their bag and they may actually read it. And therefore you can see, thank you for those who have the gift of evangelism. Thank you for those who have knowledge and wisdom and those who may have word of knowledge and words of wisdom. So let me talk about this for a moment. In 1 Corinthians 12, 8, for to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom. Now, I don't think the translations are as clear or as helpful as they could be because most people don't know that the word logos is used there. Some people say just knowledge or wisdom, but it's a word, a logos a word. It's a very important word. And so it's not just to say, some people say, well, it's just knowledge. Some people just have a lot of knowledge. It does include knowledge, but it can also include a revelatory emphasis. The gift is understood, I think, I like to understand it in two ways. In one sense, knowledge is just straight up information. And so a spiritual gift of knowledge would be a uh, uh, someone who has a large deposit of knowledge, information. They're very wise and, or they're very knowledgeable in the Bible. Some people have a wealth of information about the operations of God's kingdom and especially about the Bible. They study the Bible deeply and have much learning that they use in many, in many ways to benefit others. And in this same general sense, some people have a very deep and useful spiritual wisdom. God has given them a keen sense of how to apply biblical principles to life. So there are people right here in our church. There are some of you who have a lot of Bible content. And you're very knowledgeable and we need you. And there's people that are very wise. And you might not have quite as much Bible content, but you know how to use what you've got. And you're an expert counselor in helping other people see things. And it's a gift. 
In another sense, to these same two giftings are two spiritual gifts that can be, the same two spiritual gifts could be revelatory. They clearly were in the early church. And the question is, are these things true today? Meaning God can give supernatural insight to people. I hope you believe that. A word of knowledge can be special information about a situation that a person could not have known apart from God's revealing. God can give a word of wisdom that provides special guidance or direction to people in the process of decision making. And many people dismiss these spiritual gifts in the revelatory uh, mode. But it's interesting how many of these same people often refer to the Holy Spirit as giving nudges, promptings, a strong sense, special insight, strong inclination, a strong and unexplainable feeling that I'm supposed to do this or that. So let me phrase it this way. If a person has any concept at all of walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, hearing the Spirit of God, being granted insight and illumination by the Spirit, coming under conviction of sin, being filled with the Holy Spirit, feeling the presence of the Spirit of God in a meeting, in a song, when praying, when in danger, getting guidance from God, all these things are not natural. We're talking about a supernatural relationship of God to us. And it's interesting to me how some people say God can't do this, but their own definition of how God works in their life sounds a lot like that to me. But they can't do it this way because it's categorically not done anymore. So let me say what I think. This is exactly what spiritual gifts are. All of them. Supernatural. People work so hard to avoid hyper, extreme, unexplainable, paranormal that they unknowingly and unintentionally begin to sound like rationalist or intellectual skeptics. So the minute you say you believe in Genesis 1-1, may I inform you, you're a supernaturalist. People work so hard to avoid what someone else Maybe has taught them or extremes. But the minute you say you believe in the resurrection from the dead, you are a supernaturalist. The minute you say you believe in miracles, angels, demons, you are a supernaturalist. The minute you say you believe that prayer is real, can actually change situations, you are a supernaturalist. The minute you ask God to heal someone, protect someone, save someone, you are a supernaturalist and you believe in a realm beyond the natural world. The minute you ask God, or the minute you say the stories in the Bible are real, you are an entirely different category from the naturalist, the atheist, the deist, the unbeliever. So I need to ask you, why do Christians put up such a fuss and get in so many arguments about the power of God and how He did work in the past and how He might and wants to work today? How can any of us imagine that he will go into a less active mode, less fantastic mode, less miraculous mode as he heads down the final stretch of waging war against Satan and bringing out that he would cease bringing out the big guns of spiritual gifts and the promised Holy Spirit and that he will not disrupt our calm and serene worship services, that he would not barge into our small group meetings, he would not radically rescue addicts on the street or pardon criminals locked behind bars. 
So can I say in my view, church is crazy. Not chaotic. But can be very unpredictable when God comes. The kingdom of God can be a bit wild. The lion of Judah is not tame. And he's hungry and his roar is intense like a mighty rushing wind. And that leads me to the topic we've been discussing for two weeks. So what about speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues? Is tongues a modern gift of the Holy Spirit given to us? That's the question. Did it cease with the early church and all peoples who speak in tongues are saying gibberish, are being misled by Satan, is wicked, it is wicked, strange fire, and should be exposed and rejected as demonic? That is clearly the position of some. Quite a few, in fact. Some very respectable and admirable believers, leaders and theologians take a very emphatic stance that the supernatural gifts of the Spirit lasted only during the days of the twelve apostles. So here is my understanding and belief about speaking in tongues. And I'm not saying everyone here is going to share the exact same belief with me, but people do kind of want to know where the pastor stands, where they go to church. So let me kind of help you see where I'm at. Speaking in tongues is a spiritual gift that was active in the early church and is active today. Jesus taught that it would be one of many manifestations or accompanying signs of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. Matthew 16, 15 to 22. And I want to say, I want to kind of pause here for just a second. I want to open up a big can of worms because most people go, I never heard anything like that in my life. But there are people who try to eliminate the last verses of Mark 16 and therefore it eliminates that verse in the equation. Personally, I don't think there's anyone that can completely eliminate it because even those people who try to eliminate verse end up saying, well, we think. And there were a few manuscripts. So I don't eliminate it at all. Um, I recognize there are a few manuscripts that have it out. But out of the 1,600, 1,575 of them, leave it in. I understand. I've read on it, so you don't, you don't need to come bring me a, a book. And I've, read, I've read on it. I mean, if you have a book, I'll look at it. But I might just be able to say I've, I've read that. So I'm familiar with, I'm familiar with some, of the, um, some of the issues and the discussions about Mark 16. I, I think it's perfect. First of all, I think it would be a really weird for Mark 16. If you read Mark, it would be really weird if it ended at verse 8. It doesn't even describe the complete resurrection of Jesus. It's like that would be really like not where any gospel writer would write because that's where he's trying to get to. Okay, but anyway. Okay, so secondly, um, Jesus promised the new covenant would be characterized by a much more dynamic and widespread, widespread outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all believers. In other words, Jesus, the new covenant was an expression of a greater outpouring. And can I say that? I think we all agree with that. I think everybody here wants that. I think everybody goes, of course we want that. And some people might say, I don't know about it manifesting this way. Everybody wants that. 
Everybody wants to be a new covenant. We want to be a new covenant, fully blessed church of Christ where the Spirit of God is blessing what we're doing, changing lives, impacting people for the kingdom of God, filling people with His Spirit and gifting people to do things. I think all of us, there's no disagreement on this particular point in our midst. And I I just kind of want to say, let that be kind of a guiding light for us, a guiding principle that we might disagree on a few of these things, but this is what we long for. And I want you to know that this is what your pastor longs for. And I think I've got a whole lot of people that long for the same thing. As a matter of fact, I I personally think that everybody that's here uh, desires for that. Okay, so the Holy Spirit first burst upon the scene in Joel with a Joel 2 fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 as the church of 120 believers received the Holy Spirit and spoke in new tongues. And a large group of Jews heard the 120 speaking in tongues. And declared that they heard them declaring the mighty works of God in their native languages. So the tongue speakers had no idea what they were saying as they spoke in new tongues. And they either, I I shared with you the one or two miracle view last year. You you have to pick one of those. They either miraculously spoke the exact human languages of all the nations represented in the crowd. Which set the stage for Peter's sermon where 3,000 were saved. And this would be... um, the majority view for those who would be uh, cessationists. Okay, so, or they miraculously spoke. Now, that would be actually the majority view for most people on, on both sides. Most people would look at Acts 2 and say, I think they were speaking languages, and I, I get it. I do think there's another possibility. And also, there's, there's a, a little bit of a, a Greek, an interesting Greek, uh, I forget which verse it is, but it's a verse when he said, and we heard them speaking in our own tongues. And um, so there's a word order matters in the Greek. Uh, it's kind of a language where um, what you put first matters and there's word order. A little different than our language a little bit, but word order matters. And there's an interesting, uh, it's interesting how I see the translators tra- translate that. But I'm not going to bore you with that. But it says, or here's another possibility. They miraculously spoke in new tongues, a language which no one knew. But, they, but the Holy Spirit enabled them to understand it in such a clear way that they each miraculously heard them speaking in their own language. In my opinion, either view is possible. One interesting detail that makes me open to the double miracle view, speaking and speaking miracle and a hearing miracle, is that the mockers and skeptics in the crowds did not say anything about the disciples, that the disciples were fluently speaking known human languages, And surely there would have been some of all the people that traveled from distances that would have known enough of a language to recognize Spanish or French or German or whatever the language was. Like, if I'm at a setting, I'm not very good at Spanish at all, but I understand enough to go there. They're speaking Spanish. They're speaking this language. These were world travelers there at Jerusalem. So there's no doubt that somebody would have said, um, well, what they're doing is they're speaking little phrases in, in these languages. No one said they learned so, this trickery, they learned a few foreign languages. Rather, they said no one knows what in the world they're saying, they're drunk. So whatever they were saying didn't sound to them like, at least to the crowd who weren't understanding, it didn't sound like they were speaking known languages. It says you sound like you're speaking gibberish and muttering. And again, I know, I'm not saying... I'm just saying it seems to me that's a, a possible explanation of why they say you're drunk instead of saying, hey, you guys are back there doing trickery. You got some, some cards over here speaking fluent German, don't you, or fluent whatever. It's like, no, it was like, this is crazy, and they're drunk. 
And Peter immediately says, they're not drunk. This is Joel 2 happened right in front of you. So anyway, the result was the believers spoke in tongue, leading unbelievers uh, stuck around and it worked in such a way that they were amazed and they stuck around to hear Peter preach the gospel and 3,000 were saved and it started at Jerusalem, which is kind of interesting because that's where, that's where Jesus said it will start, start in Jerusalem, then move out in Acts 8. They received, there was a group of people that received the Holy Spirit. Philip preached and many were saved and baptized. Uh, I, I read a few articles even uh, from those who don't believe in the continuation of speaking in tongues, some think, well, maybe it probably happened there because it was uh, similar to what happened in each of the instances as you see, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. Here they are in Samaria. One thing is clear. They received the Holy Spirit and there were manifestations of God with miracles there in Acts 8. In Acts 10, the Gentiles heard the gospel from Peter and believed. So they heard the gospel And then afterwards, they began to speak in tongues. And the Jewish believers were like shocked. And like, what? The Gentiles are receiving the gospel. And they're speaking in tongues. In Acts chapter 19, we see the circle. We see Acts 1-8 being expanding even more. Because we had, we first we had Gentiles in Caesarea, which is part of the Jewish part of Israel. Or it's like right there. It's like if you had Israel, and I'm just going to use this shape like this. You have Jerusalem, and then you move toward the um, Mediterranean Sea. You have Caesarea, not that far from Jerusalem, but Gentiles still in that general geographical location. So Gentiles were believing, but they were still kind of near Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 19, we have Paul, the missionary to Gentiles. He's a way away, and now the gospel is like moving out in power and a fresh demonstration again. Now Paul, on his missionary journey, um, uh, shares the gospel with people they believe, and then they come to receive the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues. And so we have this this movement of God where you see now, just like Jesus said, and the emphasis of Acts is the Spirit of God moving out. And it used to be the Spirit of God says to everybody, go to Jerusalem and become a good Jew. And now the Spirit is moving out and saying, become a follower of Jesus Christ. And you don't need to be circumcised because people who weren't circumcised were being filled with the Spirit and speaking in tongues. It's like they had never, used to be you had to go through the old, old covenant door and now that door is just blown off, off its hinges and they're out doing world evangelism. So you see the emphasis in Acts isn't so much the manifestations that are occurring. It's conversions are occurring and there are manifestations as evidences of what God is doing. So when we get to 1 Corinthians 12... It introduces the topic of spiritual gifts. It describes speaking in, it lists speaking in tongues and interpretation as some of those gifts. When we get to chapter 13, it's a comparative chapter. Nothing compares to love. Nothing compares. The gifts don't compare to love. Love is more important. So in all your use of the gifts, make sure love is more important. Don't ever use the gifts without love. Don't ever use the gifts without love. Love is far more important. And so he says, if I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's like a loud, irritating noise. And then he goes on and talks about it a little bit more and he gets down to the end and he says, "Um, 
Well, love never ends. Like love is vastly superior to any of these gifts. And he lists a few gifts, and he said they're going to stop. Tongues will cease. Knowledge will pass away. Um, for we know in part the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Some people say that that perfect there is referring to the canon of Scripture, but there's no text in the Bible that says that, even though there are theologians who argue that point. It, I think it's a very, very weak argument. I think it's like you already got your mind made up when you get here and you're trying to figure out how to make this, like, hmm, maybe I've got something there I can work with. I think it's saying love is more important than any of this and all these gifts that are given to promote the gospel once Christ returns, we're not promoting anymore. So all the equipment, it's kind of like once you build a building, you don't need the earth-moving equipment anymore. And it's like, well, once Jesus comes, we don't need all those things that were part of propelling the gospel to the ends of the earth. We don't, we don't need them anymore. That's when they'll disappear, not like, oh, everything disappears because we have the complete canon of Scripture, which is another thing took several, took quite a while. Took quite a while for them to agree on what they had. Um, okay, so anyway, then you keep going and you, then you come to chapter 14. And in chapter 14, you have more descriptions of speaking in tongues than any other passage. Um, in chapter 14, pursue spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy or especially those that edify the body of Christ. And it says, for one, who's, one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. That's um, one who speaks in a tongue. So speaking in tongue here is described as uttering mysteries in the spirit. What is speaking in tongues? It's uttering mysteries in the spirit. Okay, um, well, prophecy builds up everybody. This is why it's better. One who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Well, wait a minute. One who speaks in a tongue actually does build up himself. It's, for, it's edifying yourself. And I deem that to be the most predominant use. I think it builds up an individual who has this gift. And on occasion, even, even seems like a rare occasion, that it might have a revelatory benefit to the church, but only if someone's there can interpret it. I've heard a lot of Pentecostal charismatic churches that would say, we don't do that here. We don't do that in the service. Um, I've heard a lot say, no, that's not for the public setting like the big church service. But at least in Corinth, it says that it could happen. And it would happen only if you... Um, only if you have someone to interpret what's being said in this mystery in the Spirit. Only if someone can interpret the mystery in the Spirit um, can they, can they uh, explain it or, or uh, will it edify. So he who speaks in a tongue, the positive side is the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. Um. In verse 6, if you come, if I come to you speaking in tongues, which obviously he could, um, Paul says later that he has the gift. If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge? And he's like saying, well, in the public gathering, what you need is a proclamation of the word of God. You need, thus saith the Lord. You need God, you need God to speak. So Paul's saying, I'm, I don't do that when I go places. I go for... Um, proclaiming for prophesying, as he said. 
Okay, so then we have, um, he then talks about, you know, the bugle or the trumpet, if it gives an indistinct sound, um, you need to know what the sound means. Like if eight guys, if there was a battle and eight guys went out and started blowing the trumpet and they were all blowing something different, it would be terrifying in the army, like going, charge, retreat, charge. You know, what, what is he saying? People would die. And in the same way, when he describes speaking in tongues, he said, well, it's kind of like um, indistinct notes, indistinct sound. Um, so it's not really for the group because it would be very confusing to the group. And then it said it would be kind of like speaking into the air, like it wouldn't benefit anyone. And then verse 12, so you yourself, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit. And can, can, I, say, can I just stop there a second? That's what we want. That's what we want. We want manifestations of the Spirit. And you know what manifestation of the Spirit I most love? It's when people come to faith in Jesus. And they walk away from their sin and they say, I trust Jesus. Can, is that not what we want? All these other things are, are means to that. Everything, spiritual gifts are means for people to come into the kingdom of God and spread the gospel. And that's what these chapters are about. It's like, don't, don't, don't lose sight of that. Okay, so then he says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So there we have what is known as praying in tongues. And I'm back to my contention that I think that's probably the most normative um, way that this gift is manifested. Very rarely, or at least my experience. Now, this passage seems to imply that <clears throat> could happen in any given service. But even those people that I know that are in those settings would say, well, most of the time speaking in tongues is a private prayer language where they're praying from spirit to spirit, from my spirit to God. Okay, so, and then Paul says in 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. A lot of commentators just erase that. They just say, oh, Paul was using that as um, uh, like joking or um, hypothetical or uh, like, uh, what do you call? I don't know, kind of, kind of a, a play on words or something. And they say, oh, no, Paul didn't mean what he said there. He was just kind of joking and using a hypothetical situation kind of thing. Well, if I did this, he, he just says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. There's nothing in this passage that indicates that he's using some sort of uh, play on words. I think he said, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. I think Paul had a very powerful prayer language that he spoke to God. And there's no ex expositor that I've ever read that can make me think otherwise. I've read a bunch of them, and for a while I did think otherwise because I, 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 I embraced exactly what I've been taught. People were teaching me this. It's like, yeah, first thing you learn, it's hard to let go of sometimes. That's what I learned from the beginning, but it just didn't fit. I just started getting frustrated with it. And so then, um, verse 22, um, well, Paul does say the reason he didn't do it because he had the gift of preaching and prophesying. So he said, I'd rather speak five words with my mind or to help people than 10,000 words in a tongue. He didn't, need, he didn't need it. It's like, he didn't need it. It's like, what I needed was come there and preach the word of God to him. And that's what he did. That was his, that was his go-to. That was what he felt. This is how I'm going to edify these people. Now, he might be edified himself and built up in his faith and supercharged. So 
Um, then he says tongues are, are signed not for believers but for unbelievers. Uh, this is verse 22. Prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. So let me just give you a quick word on that. Tongues are a sign for unbelievers. In other words, that manifestation makes people kind of step back going, what, what, what is going on? But it needs an, it's not helpful to them until there's interpretation. So let me just kind of stop here and let me say a couple things. Um, I'm, I used to consider myself uh, earlier on, I'll say kind of a reluctant cessationist. My theological training put me in that camp. My personal experience, reading of the scripture, and yearning to understand God's word always made me uncomfortable saying, just dismissing everything. Because I knew people that I did not think were demonic, who I believed genuinely loved God. And some of them I felt like loved God a lot more than I did. And I couldn't believe they would be doing something so demonic and still be so bold and living out their lives for God. Um, so I, I, I'm not prepared. I don't call myself a Pentecostal. I, I'm not sure. Some people are saying, oh, you're becoming charismatic now. And I, I'm not sure. There's a lot packed into that word. And so maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. I'm not comfortable with it because I just don't know what all everyone's thinking when they use that word. And so like going, well, I, I don't, I'm not worried about that word. I don't use, it's not my new label. Are we charismatic now? Charismatic? I, I don't, I don't know. I just believe in the gifts and that God gives them and that we should receive them. And I am clearly what I would call a supernaturalist. I believe in the power of God and the work of God and I really imagine all Christians are. And so when it comes to tongues, I have come to believe that it's an unknown unknown language, a mysterious language given by the Holy Spirit. And it could come out as a foreign language. And maybe that's exactly what had... I have no problem saying that... Someone says that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. And I say, yeah, I I see that. Um, But when I look at what was normative, I don't see any other example of speaking in tongues in the New Testament other than Acts 2 that I would clearly go, well, that's definitely languages, therefore it's all. Because nowhere else do I get that sense. Um... I have a feeling that it's a language unknown, a mystery given by the Spirit of God. Um, Sometimes edifying to large groups, always edifying to the individual. And and it happens in our church. I'm going to, I don't want to put anyone on the spot. Well, maybe I don't. Um, But here's, I want to frame it this way. I'm just wondering. This is for your benefit. It's not for me. This is for your benefit because people like going, what kind of people am I going to church with? You know, what's going on in here? Um, I just want to let you know that there are people in our church that they believe with all of their heart that these gifts are relevant and real and that many of them have this gift. So I'm going to ask this question. No one has to do anything if you don't want to. But I do want to ask this question. How many people have ever attended uh, a church where these gifts are used or you know people, you're friends with people that have these gifts? How many people would fit into that category? I would say a lot of you. So let me ask you this, and this is a whole other question. This is totally, no, there's no pressure. No one's going to go, honey, why didn't you raise your hand? You know, 
It's just like, let me just ask you, because there are people here that are really honestly kind of wondering. They're just kind of wondering, is that like people in our church? How many, of you, how many people in this church um, believe in this gift and exercise this spiritual gift of speaking in tongues? And it's okay to turn around and look. No one's going to get mad or angry. Okay? It's more people than you, you would have thought. And so your pastor does not. I'm very open to it. I've prayed so many times for years. But you know what I believe? No man can give it to me. And no man better try. God can. And so nobody's going to try to give you something. Don't you worry. No one's going to, if someone comes up and pats you on the head, they're not trying to move tongues down your leg, down their arm and into your head. And Here's what I'm going to say. And we're going to be done with this topic, at least as far as a sermon topic. I don't think we'll be done with it because a lot of people are still just trying to figure out for themselves. I just want you just to simply say, here's the way I want you to pray. I don't want you to say, Lord, give me them tongues. I want you to say, Lord, give me whatever you would have me to have that might help our church follow you. And if some people have it, God, then let me be thankful for that. And I'm not going to be jealous or mad or I'm not going, shoot, that's the one I wanted. Um, I just want you to say, Lord God, I'm just going to trust you. And we believe that 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 is something that some people in our church exercise. And you may sit here and you go, I don't believe in any of it, but I still love these folks. And I'm still here and they're not doing anything too crazy that I need to leave. I seriously, I just think that's, that's a spread. And that goes right back to chapter 13. That takes us right back to chapter 13. Is Lord, can we love people? Can we love to learn love people? Or are we going to divide over everything? There's some things we need to divide over. Okay, there are some things. When people get down and say, I don't believe in the resurrection, I'm out of here. Or when people say, I don't know, they raise one doctrine to the supreme doctrine. It's like, unless you're this, you're not a true Christian. Whatever, I'm out of here. Um, but here's, here's what we long for. We want people to walk into this place and have this sense that God is moving. We want to proclaim the word of God and for people to come under conviction. And we want to see people repenting. We want to see people crying out to God with tears and sorrow and joy. We want to see God moving in people's lives. We want to see wonderful, powerful expressions of worship as we praise God. We just want people to come here and go, man, God is there. God is there. That's what we're longing for. Okay? Are we still together after all this? All right, good. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, and we praise you, um, just knowing the way that you love us. And as we close with this final song, God, we just cry out to you in our hearts. We just want you to move in our midst. We want you. We don't want gifts without the gift giver. We want you and whatever you want to do with us, God. And help us just to love and cherish this precious word of God that you've given to us. And it will be a guide for us in all that we do, in all faith and practice. Your word, we stand upon your word. In Jesus' blessed name, amen.